Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. to introduce you to my guest on today's episode. Dr. Tama Bryant is the president-elect of the American Psychological Association. She's also a tenured professor of psychology in the Graduate School of Education and Psychology at Pepperdine University, where she directs the Culture and Trauma Research Laboratory. Her clinical and research interests center on interpersonal trauma and the societal trauma of oppression. She's the past president of the Society for the Psychology of Women and a past APA representative to the United Nations. She's one of the foundational scholars on the topic of the trauma of racism. Dr. Tama has raised public awareness regarding mental health by extending the reach of psychology beyond the academy and beyond private therapy office through community programming and media engagement, including, but not limited to, Headline News, National Public Radio, and CNN. Having earned a Master's of Divinity, Dr. Tama is also an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Dr. Tama also utilizes sacred dance and spoken word in therapy, community forums, and faith communities. A member of the Association of Black Psychologists, she incorporates culturally-based interventions in her teaching, research, and practice. Dr. Tama is also the host of the Homecoming Podcast, a mental health podcast to facilitate your journey home to your authentic self. I have no doubt that you're already blown away by Dr. Tama after hearing that selection of highlights from her bio, but I really cannot wait for you to hear the wisdom that she shares in this conversation. I loved discussing a listener question with her about divisions within a family system over religion, so I hope you listen to hear her thoughts on that issue and many others. Without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Tama. 
Hello, Dr. Tama. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you are welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. I am too. I have been following your work, especially on social media, for some time now. And you are, of course, the incoming president of the American Psychological Association, which means that I very proudly cast my vote for you when you were running. But you and I have never, this is our first meeting, so I'm delighted to get to meet you in this way. Oh, thank you. And so appreciative to have another connection of someone in the field who is navigating that social media space as we try to disseminate this information with the podcast and in social media. I tell you what, it's a new world, right? I mean, you and I have been at this for a minute. It's thrilling that we can have conversations like this and it will reach well over 100 countries and I imagine that you also kind of wrestle with how do we stay in our professional integrity and our personal integrity. It's just, it's a lot, hey? Right. It really is. And people are so appreciative, though, and grateful of us bringing the information kind of outside of the academy and not just in the therapy office, but where people can easily access it. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad to be a part of that work. Absolutely. You know, you have perhaps the most incredible resume that I have ever seen when we, you know, your introduction is going to be like five minutes of our episode. It's just (laughs) incredible, Dr. Tama, like what you have done in your career from training at Duke and Harvard to now being professor. I mean, you've been a professor at Pepperdine for a while and holding both elected and appointed positions in professional and governmental organizations, award-winning filmmaker and ordained minister. And now you have recently added podcast host and author of your brand new book, Homecoming, Overcoming Fear and Trauma to Reclaim Your Whole and Authentic Self, which is not your first book, but it's your first popular press book. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, It is a very rich life. And one of the things that liberated me around that is I was having a conversation with my mother and she's years ago now, but she said to me, single gifted people will rarely understand multi-gifted people. To them, you will always look scattered. Just be everything that you are. And that was very freeing because what happened is, you know, I do spoken word poetry. So people who meet me performing say, oh my goodness, why are you wasting your life in the academy? You should be like on the stage. But then people who encounter me in psychology are like, why are you wasting time with poetry? Like you're, you know, (laughs) you could be publishing more. So it's embracing the fullness of what comes and what I enjoy. Oh my gosh. I mean, what wisdom from your mom that she, she, she sees all those parts of you and really wanted to invite and challenge you to tease apart the difference between being scattered and being really delighted to put yourself in a variety of spaces. That's right. And it's been freeing for so many people when I share that, because there you know, are multiple people who just have multiple gifts, multiple pulls on their lives, and to not always you know, feel it has to be the false choice, like you're not serious if you're doing anything else. So it's liberating. Oh, my goodness. Right. And to be singly gifted is magnificent also, right? To just dive into your one gift and shine in the world That's right. in that way. And as you are describing, your multiple gifts means that whatever thread you would drop, you would lose a part of yourself. That's right. 
Well, let me ask you this. Let me, before we go more deeply into your work, whenever we have a guest expert in this space, I love to ask our relational self-awareness question. So are you ready for me to bring that to you? Yes. I would love for you to talk a bit about uh, Growing Edge that you are working on in one of your important relationships and what it has been teaching you lately. Yes. It has been so wonderful for me in the realm of, and I like to use the language sisterhoods, but being more intentional about developing and maintaining mutual and reciprocal friendships. So I think many times uh, there are people who can feel like they're the strong one in their family or the strong one in their community, or they are the resource that other people turn to. And if you are not careful, I'll say, especially if you're a caretaker or a mental health provider, or that's your personality, uh, or if you're a firstborn, you can take (laughs) that on and end up in a lot of one-sided relationships where primarily you're pouring out, but not receiving. And so one of the gifts for me in this season of my life, it was a little bit before COVID, is I started uh, this sisterhood circle uh, called The Gathering. And uh, pre-COVID, we would meet at my house once a month, the first Sunday of every month. And then, you know, with the times we're living in, it switched to Zoom. But these are like some powerful, brilliant, talented, incredible women. And so when we gather, it's a mutual pouring, right? It's not like one person having to advise or guide or lead or direct. Everyone in the circle shares. And so one, it's a place where we can be transparent of like, you know, here's the praise report. Like this is what went well this month. And then this is the part that's like crumbling or this is the part that I could use some like insight on or what do you all see or think? And it has been such a gift. I mean, really, really wonderful. And so that really is my piece now is enjoying the mutuality and the reciprocity and letting myself give permission to receive. I think a lot of times we're giving, but are we also receiving? And so I've been enjoying receiving mutual sisterhood. That's incredible. I suspect that a lot of people who turn to this podcast identify similarly as caregivers and the strong one the one who's kind of done their work. I certainly identify that way as well. And I think there can be like, for as much as we can sort of complain sometimes about the heaviness of that, mutuality can be a bit threatening, right? It can be a growing edge of like, oh, wait a minute, if I'm not in charge, if I'm not fixing, if I'm not the one being leaned on, who exactly am I then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good around like control issues. Mm-hmm. It's a definite way to stay in control. And so what I often will say to people, like if you feel you have to be the only one with the right idea in the room, like then we can never grow. So it's wonderful to be in the presence of people who add like a different insight, a different perspective or know something about an area that I don't know very much about. And so it's really a give and take, but it is a shift if we have made it a comfort zone that I can see everybody else, but nobody can see me. Yeah. And so then it's different to be in a space where you actually reveal yourself. Yeah. And you allow somebody else to have that wonderful feeling of being of service to you. And I imagine, especially in your particular sister circle, 
to be in right. circle with you and to be able to offer something to you must feel wonderful for your sisters, you know, to be like, oh my gosh, yes. Tama is like taking me in and she's drinking me in and I'm offering something to this woman who offers so much to the world. So I can imagine that's extra special for the women in your circle. Uh, and it feels good, as you say, giving the gift of letting people show up for you. Because I think sometimes we'll complain like, oh, you know, I'm there for everyone, but no one's there for me. But do you let people <laughs> like be there for you? I know some people who, when they're going through, like hide or disappear, yep. right? Because so it's like only appearing once you're all together. But as you're naming, what a gift of friendship to be transparent and to allow people to support you and pour into you and encourage you. It means sometimes that we have to start a conversation that we don't know where it's going to end up, where we can say, I know that I'm hurting in this way, but then to just like allow the conversation to unfold, which is another kind of releasing of control, right? To say, I don't have this problem wrapped up in a tidy bow. I know I've got something activated in me, in my relationship with my child, but I don't know what it is. And so let me just start to talk. And then can you listen me into a space of deeper understanding? And that right there is also vulnerable too, right? That's right. Say, I don't know where this is going. I don't have the answer. Like, I'm very curious. What do you all think? I don't know. Yeah. You know, we were talking about receiving and it was taking me to something that I read on your Instagram feed, which is just beautiful. And obviously we're going to link to all things Dr. Tama in the show notes. But you had this post recently where you wrote, those who learned to survive on crumbs may feel anxious when a feast arrives. Breathe. You are worthy. You can take your seat at the table instead of standing at the door in survival mode. Yeah. I think it's a variation on, you know, we were saying that one of the challenges to receiving is it requires a release of control. But here you're inviting us to look at one of the challenges to receiving is we have become accustomed to going without. Right. That unworthiness, the scarcity, when we've become adjusted to the dysfunction of it all, then when people show up differently, we can have challenges trusting it, right? It's like some people experience kindness as fake, mm -hmm. right? Because they're only used to people being kind to manipulate them. Mm -hmm. So then if you are kind or smiling, they think like you must have an agenda, right? What are you really up to? That's the feast that someone could actually be delighted to see you, that someone could really not be trying to take something from you. It requires a shift and an ease. And many people, especially trauma survivors, yep. are not used to being at ease in the presence of other people. Mm -hmm. They are used to being understandably on alert in a space of vigilance, as you were saying, like looking for what the angle is, what's right behind your kindness. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I have a client now who is newly having met someone but the scary thing is, like, she actually likes him. But it's not, he's not, he's not doing anything terrible. So it's like week after week of trying to figure out, like, should she run? Because if it doesn't work out, she would be really disappointed. Versus if you're just used to dealing with people who are ridiculous and outrageous, then they can come and go because you knew from the beginning it was bad. Mm -hmm. But when it actually feels good and actually feels safe and actually feels like you can take down your armor, can be very just vulnerable and scary. Yeah. She's being invited to stretch into a space of more intimacy 
than she's being invited into a space that her trauma had cut her off from, right? Like to kind of create a smaller world and a safer world and a more contained world is an understandable and highly adaptive response to trauma. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I say a lot of times that healing is a faith walk of can I believe I could receive something I've never seen? I've never really been treated well. It can't be real. It must be a trick. But can I believe it? Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. When you call it a faith walk, it makes me think about how your ordained minister role weaves into your psychology role, right? So you go right from trauma work to weaving in faith. Right. It is holistic, which is what we all are. So research shows that on average, mental health professionals endorse lower religiosity and spirituality than the general public. Ah. So then you have largely people who don't have a faith system directing the healing process of people who do. So that's (laughs) going to be a disconnect, right? And so, you know, it's been wonderful to be a part of providers, mental health professionals who are kind of bridging those gaps to make people feel like you don't have to choose. Some people have felt like either go to therapy or pray. And it's like, you don't have to choose. You can do all of the pathways to get you home to yourself. And, you know, actually, yeah, people are surprised when I share that the root word for psychology comes from the Greek, which means study of the soul. Oh, my gosh. We've lost our soul in an effort to whatever, you know, these sort of like these systems. The Yeah, prove that we're scientific. Yeah. Yes. Which is very much a colonial mentality, a white, a system of whiteness and what's valued and what's devalued. It's true. The myth of objectivity, right? Whereas like we all have a worldview. We're all coming in with history and with culture and with a lens. And that doesn't just have to be a barrier. It's an asset of how did people before you heal and being able to acknowledge and incorporate those in our own journey. So take us a step further with this client of yours. So you are inviting her on the faith walk to believe in the possibility of something she has yet to see. And knowing full well, you don't know how it's going to go with this partner, right? You know, you know that you are helping her take a step with an uncertain outcome because this partner may end up being disappointing in some way. So this idea of a faith walk helps her keep taking the steps. Will it also help her if things don't go the way that she hopes they will go? And we frame that now of 
even if you're not with this person the rest of your life, can you enjoy this season? Mm. You all are having a good time. You went to the movies, you go out to eat, you talk on the phone for hours. If seven years from now you have gone your separate ways, was this not still enjoyable? So shifting the frame so that it doesn't have to be like forever or it was nothing. Beautiful. That's part of the faith. The faith is also a faith in herself that she can hold on to her own worthiness. It's not dependent on the outcome of the relationship. And she can hold on to sort of the decency of the world or that the, her whole sense of the world and people and humanity doesn't rest on how this goes or doesn't go. That's right. And that's so important because I think especially as women, we're often given the opposite message, which is like contort yourself, silence yourself, learn how you're supposed to talk, how you're supposed to text, how you're supposed to have sex in order to never be abandoned. Right. So if it doesn't end, then like you did it all wrong. That's right. If it ends, you did it wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's a big education for people that you can have two good people and it still not work out. It doesn't necessarily mean like that someone is bad or just not to be a match or aligned or it was aligned in this season. And then you or the other person grows and changes. And that can happen to, as you're saying, take the judgment off of it that makes it now you are unworthy. Right. This is so important for especially those in their a single season tell the story of, I want to say I was in my early 20s when it occurred to me that I could pick none of the above. Whereas before I used to think I had to pick the best of bad choices, right? So it's like, <laughs> well, this person likes me and this person likes me. Neither of them are any good, but let me pick the best of the two. The least bad. And it's like none of the above. <gasps> <gasps> oh, I love it. What stands out to me so much about your work uh, is how it is founded from the ground up in a deep and abiding understanding of how identity is inextricably bound with the larger systems, which means that systemic oppression, racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia, et cetera, is a mental health matter. And so when you talk about a woman who feels like she can't make the none of the above choice, that points us towards sexism, which intersects with what, what all of her other identities, right, around how that she, her worth is defined through her relationship status. But that is the heart of what you do, right, is looking at self in the systems. Absolutely. And it's important for us to recognize that when we ignore these larger structures, when we ignore oppression, then we're a puzzle. We're a mystery. It's like, I can't believe I don't like my body or I can't believe I don't like my hair. And it's like, where did that message really come from? Not just from your mom or the kid at preschool, but like larger than that, we are bombarded with these messages in, yeah. in the media and who gets chosen and who is not chosen. So it makes sense that those messages would affect us. We look at our areas of insecurity or intimidation. That's why some people have critiqued the term imposter syndrome, because hmm. syndrome implies that something is wrong with your thinking versus you're in a hostile environment. Sometimes you're in a setting that communicates to you, you don't belong here. Uh, so then now that you feel like you don't belong there, right, you don't have a syndrome. You just have assessed your circumstance. <laughs> when we make personal that which is systemic, our only possible conclusion is that we are broken, damaged, wrong. That's it. So feeling incapable, ineffective. And what a heavy weight, especially anyone who comes from a historically excluded identity. A lot of times when we get in these places, 
there's a weight to it, the weight of representation, where people are thinking your success or failure speaks to everybody from your group. And it doesn't just start with adulthood. Kids can feel that, that like they have to represent their whole community, like in this moment or with these grades. And so needing space for our humanity, uh, for our compassion, for our worthiness separate from our busyness. Mm, Right. I see this so often with my students at Northwestern who are either first generation in their family to go to college or from an underprivileged community and at Northwestern. And it's this like dialectic, this tension, this both and of that awareness of the deep pride that their neighborhood has, that their family has, that they have, and releasing that heavy weight on their shoulders of, I have to get this just right in order to prove. That balancing act, right? Because the reality is there and people do make assumptions about your whole group based on like what you do in these moments. And then at the same time, inviting some ease into your life of like, can you ever rest? Can you ever have fun? Can you ever relax? Can you ever enjoy? What does it look like to pace yourself or do something that's just for you and not be automatically labeled as selfish or that survivor's guilt? You had this opportunity and a lot of people who didn't. So there can be a weightiness to that. But, you know, what we say is we want to have sustainability, meaning you burn yourself out in that way, you just can't last, right? And so how do I approach this from the standpoint of it being a marathon for longevity? It's one of the places where community care comes in, right? Is making sure that you have people on either side and all around you that are reminding you to rest, that are sharing that they also have that struggle or that tension, right? It's the importance of affinity spaces where you can look around and see people who look like you, whose journeys parallel yours in important ways and say, I'm feeling this. Are you feeling this right? And can you remind me? I'm forgetting about why it's okay to rest, that we can't, that's the community piece. And there's beautiful work being done in this area for your listeners who's on Instagram or on Twitter, a woman who calls herself the Nat Bishop. And she talks about rest as resistance. And I believe she has a book. And it's important to know, as opposed to quote unquote, neutral ideas about resting, what it specifically means when you have an identity that is marginalized, where you experience oppression, to know a part of how we resist is not only with our marching, but with our resting. Mm, Beautiful. And that that's a piece of intergenerational trauma, especially for BIPOC folk, intergenerationally, that, that idea of generationally having not been able to experience rest, right? Having to work to the bone. Like, so there's a piece of the, of trauma to that as well. Yeah. So it can be a part of the ways in which we were raised and socialized that being still was historically dangerous. You know, you could be penalized for not working and not being busy. And so then, you know, kind of that getting passed down that you're not just going to sit around all Saturday. That's like, a, you know, outrageous. How are you just going to sit there, you know, get up and do something. So learning how to have the gift and luxury and human right of rest, even if those who raised us did not have. It. I think sometimes we need those added permission slips. It's like you as yourself deserve rest. But if what we have to do is remind you of your ancestors and like sort of see this as to rest is to honor everyone before you who couldn't rest, where it was not safe to rest. That maybe supercharges it or adds that extra layer of it's a reverence. It's an act of reverence, in fact. Mm, 
Yeah, so beautiful. And it takes adjustment. And the reality is, let me say, for trauma survivors, sometimes stillness is scary because then all the things you've been running from come up. Some of us have been coping by staying busy, by being productive. And so when you slow down, like how scary, you might have to see yourself or see some parts of your life that you really don't want to attend to. So slowing down in stages and also with support so that you can actually see what you perhaps have been avoiding. Mm, Okay. So stages, little bite-sized pieces. You don't have to succeed at resting all at once. Right. Like if you've been going a million miles an hour, it might be really extreme for you to suddenly go on a four-day silent retreat, right? You're like, you may be like, whoa, I'm not ready. So, you know, to take it, okay, like meditation apps or, you know, take you know, little chunks of time so you build up to that. <laughs> but that is oftentimes how we do it, right? Like, okay, what do I need? Rest. How do I win at resting? Four-day Vipassana silent retreat. Go. Right. And then you're there all triggered. Triggered. Uh Uh-huh. That we get to make any of these shifts slowly. Also, like with a sense of it's an experiment. I'm just going to notice. I'm going to notice what happens. Mm. And, you know, our emotions are information. So paying attention to what do I notice when I slow down? What do I notice if I go to bed early? What do I notice if I turn my phone off and turn the TV off? Like Then what? So starting to pay attention to that. And that will also get us in tune with how do I feel when I'm thinking about work or going to work? How do I feel in the presence of certain people versus the presence of other people? That's our emotional intelligence because many people were raised with that toxic positivity. Don't complain. You can never say if you're having a quote unquote negative emotion. So they may not even be tuned in or aware, but it's important to know what frustrates me, what disappoints me, what am I feeling resentful about, Mm. you know, to know myself. As I say, you know, with homecoming, it is telling yourself the truth and then living from that truth. What is the truth? then I have to tap in and tune into myself to know what is true. In the description of the book, Homecoming, you write about healing starts with recognizing and expressing emotions in an honest way and reconnecting with the neglected parts of yourself. And there's something almost paradoxical about recognizing what's been neglected, right? It can be hard to sort of notice the me I haven't gotten to be. It's almost like, how do you notice something that you don't even know about yourself or you've cut off about yourself? How do we start noticing what's been neglected? Sometimes we will have a wake-up call. One of the stories I tell in the book is I love spoken word. And as a graduate student, I was very much involved in like the poetry scene and the coffee houses. And I got a little older, got married, had my kids. And all these coffee houses, for you all who don't know, they're usually like on a weeknight at 10 p.m. (laughs) So I I could no longer go. I had not noticed. And so I just was busy with my life. I'm a professor, my family, blah, blah, blah. And then one night I was sitting on my couch watching YouTube on my phone. And I don't know what I watched, but somehow then it linked to all of these poems started coming up. These perform, I think during that time, it was like deaf poetry jam. And as I'm watching these poems, the tears just come down my face. And what came was a sentence I put in the book, which is, I miss me. Oh, yeah. I was like, whoa. But as you said, until that moment, I hadn't really noticed because I'm busy. I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing. But there is an aspect of me that only comes alive in that space. So when I don't have any of that in my life, 
like a part of me is dead or dormant or muted. You know, it won't be at the 10 p.m. coffee house, but how do I get my words back? How do I get my poetry back, even if it's on YouTube, so that, that I can feed that part of myself? Uh, so I would say pay attention to those holes. Yeah. yeah. That are maybe quiet, right? Because you could have, I could completely imagine a scenario where you have YouTube on your phone, you get tearful, and you're like, why am I crying? And you move on to something else, right? The way you just talked us through that, I think is going to be so powerful for people who are listening because it was subtle. It was quiet. You caught an emotional shift and you got curious about what it was. And it was, I miss me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense that like reclamation is about finding something that you used to be that you go back to. So I love that idea of, okay, so maybe that inquiry starts with like, what did you love when you were little, you know, before the world told you you shouldn't love that? Or what did the younger you delight in? Because there might be some little clues there for listeners about. Yes. And I think especially as we talk about these different systems, just with capitalism, there is a pressure for us to monetize everything. It's like you have to have multiple streams of income. And if you have any hobby that you're not making money off of, like it's somehow you're a failure. <laughs> and so that can also steal the joy from it. I tell people I love to dance, but I knew I didn't want to dance for a living. If I have to dance to like pay my rent, it kind of takes the joy out of it for me. Yep. We don't just think about everything in terms of what do I, in a material way, get out of it, but how, what feeds me. So Howard Thurman, who is this African-American theologian, he says, you know, do the things that make you come alive because far too few of us are actually alive. And it's true. Mm-hmm. We're like going through the motions. They, yeah. you know, the years passing by, people are like, is it already June or whatever month this uh, ends up airing, right? Nice. But it's like, wait, am I just marking time? Or what am I doing when I feel the most alive? And let me get back to that. And what keeps me from doing? What are the constraints? If I have gone so far as to identify what brings me alive, that's a huge part right there. Because then the next question is, what keeps me from feeling entitled to make space for what makes me come alive? And you just named a big one, which is capitalism. If I can't figure out how to monetize it, produce from it, repurpose it on my Instagram feed or whatever the hell then it's not worth it. And we talk about how we are human beings, not human doings, but we so often act like it has to be a means to some kind of an end. So that's a really important line of inquiry. If there's something that you know you love, but you aren't prioritizing it, okay, what's getting in the way? Is it a story about that? I had a conversation this morning with a friend of mine who is queer and does a lot of work around gay men and body image and gay spaces. We talked about how oftentimes body image challenges, especially for gay men, will keep men from gathering in spaces that would be really fun and revelrous and being in a club, dancing with all your friends and experiencing that ecstasy from community dancing. And do you keep yourself from it because you have learned to be so hard on your body because there's so much pressure and expectation? So that might be another constraint is a story about I don't look a certain way, so I don't have permission to be in that space, experiencing what I love to experience. So what are the blocks that are getting in the way? Mm -hmm. It's so important to look at. And I think as we go into adulthood, it becomes not only like, do I make money off of this? This is practical for me to make a living, but it also becomes, am I good enough at it? Like some people, if they're not like the next Beyonce, then it's like, why sing? If it's not about like achievement or perfectionism, but for the joy of it, 
children are good at that. Like just get up and dance or sing or it, like it doesn't have to be a quote unquote masterpiece. But I think in our adult mind, we often lose the enjoyment. And so those things are for people who are super talented, uh-huh. right? And if uh-huh. I can't be at that level, it's a waste. So getting to the joy that's not performative or based on me evaluating myself or being so harsh with myself. Yeah. Okay, we've got two more things to do. There's a thread that I wanted to make sure that I looped back to from a bit ago, which was when you were talking about imposter syndrome and sometimes when you are the only black employee in a majority white space, the only woman in a majority male space, there's a pressure that what you do, how you perform is going to be a reflection on all of your people. I think I just want to put a big spotlight on how much that invites the people who are in the majority, the white colleagues of the black colleague to know and notice the subtle ways in which we've internalized that sense that this black colleague of ours speaks for, represents our understanding of blackness, of how black engineers, whatever it is, because racism will not be healed by black folks doing it on their own. So it is white people understanding all the ways that we have been socialized and we've internalized white body supremacist notions that come out in these sneaky ways in workplaces, in family systems, whatever that is. And so that piece of your insight was so important for the marginalized person in that setting, but it's as important, or I would say perhaps even more important for the people who are in the majority in that dynamic. Yeah, it's so true. Making these assumptions in scientific or research terms, we talk about it as N of one, which is like one participant, right? So based on what one person does, you're now like overgeneralizing for an entire group. Many people will do that. I was in conversation with someone who started saying very derogatory comments about people in the LGBTQ community. And when I started challenging what they were saying, literally their response was, you can't tell me anything because I had a gay roommate before. Yeah, right. So everything was like, based on this roommate, <laughs> then these are your conclusions about a whole community of people. This is the way people often work and think they're the expert based on what you observed about one person. And so we want to be really mindful of that. It's so dangerous and problematic and is weighty. And it keeps us from seeing each other. That's right. right. Actually seeing who's in front of you versus some idea of someone from years ago. I remember I was taking a class and I was the only black student in the class. And I kept feeling some tension from the professor, even though I, you know, I always did well on my papers, exams. And for the end of the semester, Um, He shared that his daughter was a victim of partner abuse. He's white. His daughter was a victim of partner abuse and the abuser was a black man. So he has this all of this whole thing about black people. And here I am sitting in his class, don't know the man who abused his daughter or you. And yet I am feeling the weight of that. It is very painful and it's costly. So we have to become more self-aware so that we don't put that on people. It's a very, very powerful example. I'm sorry. It hurts my heart that that happened to you as a college student. I mean, it's like enough to be a college student and keeping your head above water and then to to be sent, right? Because you sensed it, you felt it, you knew it was happening, but you couldn't name it. You didn't know what it was. Right. I, I couldn't figure out what it was based on. It's like, I'm doing great in this class, but like clearly this guy has an issue with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I really want to do this listener question with you and it's a really... Juicy one. You ready for it? Okay. 
So we've got a question that comes in from Ashley in Michigan. She uses she, her pronouns. And what she wrote is, how do you find the balance between not giving unsolicited advice or opinions, but also standing up for what you believe, think, and value? There's a large divide over religion in my extended family. It comes up virtually every time we're together. Extreme statements such as, anyone who does not believe in X, Y, Z in this room is going to hell. I feel guilty if I don't say anything because I know it's hurting people, but I also try to avoid starting conflict and giving out my unsolicited opinion on polarizing topics. Either way, I end up feeling angry, defeated, or guilty whether I do or don't say something. Sometimes I wonder if maybe the best option is just to avoid toxic family members like that. Many of us have to wrestle with, because I like to say, in some ways, when you feel strongly about a justice issue, it can be easier talking to strangers than your own family. Boy, is that true. Like if you go on a march, you don't know anybody, you just hold a sign. You know, it's like, how brave did I have to be? Okay. (laughs) You know, you could be targeted. But in general, when it comes to something more like when I've had people talk about like to challenge a grandparent, right? Or to challenge their parent or, you know, an elder in the community. And so there can be all these layers of respect, but I would invite both our writer and those who are listening to consider a revelation I had to come to on a different issue, but connected. And that is when I used to be silent because I would say I'm keeping the peace. And then I had to say to myself, whose peace am I keeping? Right? Because I'm not at peace. No, it was not your peace. Like she's sitting there silent, not at peace. The people in the room who are hurt are not at peace, but the loud voice is giving their unsolicited opinion. So here it becomes, they're speaking harsh or you know speaking in this way and then frame yours as unsolicited advice is not actually what you're talking about. It is sharing your perspective. So when other people in my family believe something different than I do, do I have the freedom or permission or will I give myself the freedom or permission to be able to share my perspective? Because at first, when she framed it as unsolicited advice, I thought about like if someone is living their life dating somebody you don't like, right? And they didn't ask you what you think. That's unsolicited advice. But if someone is talking in a way that feels harmful, then this isn't about advice. It's about finding your voice. And I think the balancing act can be, I want to say something, but I'm going to not engage in a back and forth, right? So they're going to say what they think. If you think something different, just say what you think. But we also know when we're in a fruitless debate. So I'm not going to like start arguing back and forth with my grandparent, but I am going to say I disagree. And, you know, whatever it is, that statement you want to say and to know you're not the one creating the conflict. The hurtful statements that are being made are what are creating the conflict or the problem. And then the last part of her response was considering that some people decide, certain family members, they're not going to be around. And I would just say it's a personal decision, Mm -hmm. right, Um, of where's the boundary going to be. Some people cut off all their relatives and never go back. And if that's what feels right for them, you know, I can be supportive of that. And then there are those who would say by personality or culture or religion, like that's not even an option. I'm you know, I'm not going to leave my family, but then us figuring out who do you prefer to sit next to? Or can you, you know, sometimes we can busy ourselves with the kids or I'm volunteering for all the errands so I can get out of the house or Uh right Uh after dessert, I'm going to leave. So I say like, 
Are you going to give them your whole holiday? Or do you want to say like, I'm going to stop by, I'm going to yep. bring a dish yep. and then I'm yep. going to leave and do what I really want to do. <laughs> so much goodness in that response. That was so comprehensive. I mean, the revelation that you had about keeping the peace, because that is a phrase that we hear all the time, isn't it? I've never, ever thought of it that way, that keeping the peace is really keeping the peace of the loudest, most dominant, likely most privileged voice in the room. And that is the experience of being marginalized or generationally younger and or generationally younger is the idea that I've got to be the receptacle. I have to be the collateral damage and my piece is not as important. So that right there, that's a game changer. Right. Yeah. That my piece is important. You also are letting her know that it doesn't have to be a debate. The idea is it's either silence or it's debate and argument. And I love the language that you even offered her, which is a declaration of, I disagree. Maybe if she wants to say a bit more about how I, here's why I disagree. And I think when the disagreement is presented in a way that's quite experienced near my life, my friends, my relationship, my workplace, you know, rather than kind of abstract or general, it keeps that back and forth from taking off, right? Because how is someone going to debate your lived experience? I mean, people can, but it's much harder than if you're making some sweeping statement or tidbit from the news so that I disagree, an experience near description of why I disagree. And then it really doesn't perhaps have to go further than that, especially because she gets to have self-preservation be a guiding principle, right? Especially if she occupies one or more marginalized identities. They're talking about beliefs. Beliefs are kind of out there, but marginalized identities are like lived experience. And so that's not a fair fight. Someone's belief versus someone's actual experience out in the world, that's not a fair fight. So I would also want her to be really honoring self-preservation as what's the amount she can do without flooding, without dissociating, without taking on more than appropriate. And I would say yes. And, you know, around allyship or being a co-conspirator is going to be uncomfortable. And yet you're in like a unique position, potentially to shift people that other people couldn't shift. They're not going to be shifted by the news because that's the channel they watch, or they're not going to be (laughs) shifted by strangers because they can easily dismiss them. So sometimes depending on the relationship, we can see some shifts that may not be like this dramatic shift. It might start off with, you know, we don't talk like that in front of Tama because it makes her upset and she's sensitive, right? So it may start like in that way, but it's still like shifting because the ears that are there and the younger ears are taking all of that in. So if there is no counterpoint, then it becomes that what grandma said is true. I love that idea because what you're inviting is, for Ashley to kind of assess her family system and figure out where are her allies and her co-conspirators and can they be a bit proactive and kind of boost each other? Like Ashley says to whatever it is, her cousin, if I decide to speak up with grandpa this time, how will you kind of boost, amplify, you know? Right. It is. And this is what we say here in the corporate space is there's always a meeting before the meeting. So sometimes in family dynamics, you need like a phone call before the gathering to kind of get your grounding together. That's right. And an agreement to amplify, an agreement to, if you do, I will be there. Even if my palms are sweaty, even if, 
you know, I feel a little woozy. Voice is shaking, you know, <laughs> even if some tears fall, it's okay. Sure. I, I spoke my truth. Yeah. I love that I just met you, that we just covered all of this ground. This is going to be an episode that people are going to bing, as, as Oprah used to do, bing, 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 bing. All the, <laughs> it's going to just be like, yep, there's that, there's that. It's going to be like one of those ones you got to listen to three times. I just know it. Oh, thank you. I, I love your questions and the framing and bringing in decolonizing and culture and oppression and you know, all of the pieces of our lives. So this has really been rich. Thank mm, you for having me. Thank you. So if this is a listener's first time getting to know Dr. Tama, where do they go from here? I We will, I mean, one of the things obviously is go to, we, we always link to bookshop.org so we can support indie booksellers, but go grab yourself a copy of Homecoming. That's like our obvious Next step. But what else? How do people get more connected to your realm? Certainly. So my podcast is called The Homecoming Podcast with Dr. Tama. It's on all major platforms. I'm in social media, Twitter and Instagram. And as of March, I'm on TikTok. So come on over and see some of the videos. I also have a book called The Anti-Racism Handbook that came out this year as well. So that is a great resource. And my website is drtama.com. And that's D-R-T-H-E-M-A.com. And that's my name on social media as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Tama, for joining me on the show. I leave our conversation feeling so inspired by Dr. Tama's contributions to our field, but also just her outlook on life, her strategies and her philosophies for overcoming challenges, and her commitment to teaching people to heal, both individually and at the level of our communities. I hope that you enjoyed hearing from her also. And don't forget to check out the ways to keep engaging with her in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.